my name is Yvonne Rand, and um, I'm an old friend of Spirit Rocks. Uh, my home path is Zen, and I uh, teach at a small practice place in Muir Beach called Goat in the Road. Um, I've been practicing since um, in the in the Buddhist path since uh, mm, I began studying Buddhism in the 50s. I began actually practicing as a practitioner in 1966. Um, when Jack uh, Cornfield asked me if I would come and speak tonight, he said, uh, would you please be willing to talk about who your teachers have been? He said he thought that would be interesting to those of you who come to these um, evenings. And of course, I'm sure what he had in mind was that I might speak to you about the Buddhist teachers that I've had. <laughs> but I'm not so easily corralled. <laughs> so, so far, uh, I started making notes after my conversation with Jack, and I'm up to 64, but um, you'll get the idea pretty quickly. When I was seven, <laughs> I was given a um, white Arab mare named Susie and a Jersey Guernsey milking cow in milk and a black Manaka hen who laid double yolk eggs one a day. And I think of them as my first teachers. Uh, the most important lesson I learned uh, perhaps from the cow, because of course um, I had to milk her at six in the morning and six at night, and it didn't matter what my excuse was, I had to milk her because, of course, no one else in the family would learn to milk her. <laughs> and um, I've been grateful to her because I learned uh, what it's like to take on a responsibility and to do it whether one feels like it or not, which in spiritual practice is very important. Very important. Um, over the years, I, uh, especially when I was growing up, I lived, I'm an only child, and I lived with um, the animal world um, pretty intensely. And um, those animals that I grew up with were definitely uh, the source of a lot of learning, which I've um, been grateful for uh, as a Buddhist meditator. Um, I r rode and trained horses when I was a little bit older. And one of the things I didn't realize until I began Zen practice was that um, I'd learned how to sit up straight, but to be relaxed. Because horses don't like tense riders on them. So a part of uh, my response to Jack's uh, invitation is to um, invite you to join me in uh, some inquiry into um, what teaches us and when do we learn 
under what circumstances do we learn? I was an undergraduate at Stanford in the 50s, and there was a professor there named Frederick Spiegelberg who uh, taught a course on world religion, and I took that course and was quite uh, inspired and subsequently uh, took a year-long <coughs> seminar from him on Buddhism and subsequently studied with uh, Arthur Wright, whose field was Chinese history, Chinese intellectual history. But of course, a lot of what we were reading was Buddhism in China. And um, all of that academic study was really uh, helpful for me, so that by the time I met my first uh, real Buddhist teacher, uh, Shunryu Suzuki, who is the Zen master around whom the San Francisco Zen Center formed, um, I recognized the first time I went to hear him lecture, oh, here is somebody who's actually living and practicing what I had been studying about. And I was uh, very drawn to him as a teacher, but also to uh, understanding what was going on with the people who were practicing with him. Because I had a sense of some glue, for want of a better word at the time, there was some sense of connection and relationship among these people that I could uh, sense but didn't for a long time understand. But which is, of course, the consequence of practicing meditation together and studying with a teacher where the practitioners have great respect for the teacher a double blessing when that respect is appropriate, which it certainly was uh, in Suzuki Roshi's case. Um, I studied with him until he died in 1971, and uh, the biggest time of learning for me in some ways was taking care of him the last uh, months of his life as he was dying of gallbladder cancer. And um, having the direct experience of what it means to be completely present moment by moment, no matter what. Uh, those days and weeks and months in his dying were um, very ordinary. There was nothing spectacular nothing magical or out of the ordinary, except that uh, when I looked back on that time, I had a sense of having spent extraordinary time. That interesting edge between ordinary and extraordinary. That I think is directly the consequence of being in the presence of somebody who's really 100% present. And there's nothing to substitute for that direct experience of the possibility, um, not in an intellectual way, but experientially. 
Um, I made a list, which maybe I'll romp through, and then I'll uh, say a little bit about. Um, I'm, I've romped over the first page. I'd like to um, make a distinction between um, teachers I've studied with uh, who, who are in the Buddhist context and teachers who are not necessarily card-carrying Buddhists. Uh, and to also say something about the role of uh, mentors, which for me has also been very important. So um, in addition to Suzuki Roshi, I also studied with uh, Dainan Katagiri Roshi, who was also at the San Francisco Zen Center for a number of years and then went to Minnesota. And it is from him that I received authorization as a Zen teacher. And he was, uh, for me, a very interesting teacher in that he was as much uh, a good friend. And he, um, he was uh, someone who was very supportive and sometimes would say, I don't really understand what you're doing, but I trust you and go ahead and do it. He was very tough on one of his uh, disciples in Minnesota who was a very well-trained uh, psychotherapist and he would not let her talk about Buddhism and psychology at all. I would come for a visit and teach about Buddhism and psychology and he said, fine, wonderful. <laughs> uh, my ordination teacher was uh, Richard Baker who was a very uh, problematic teacher for me and the person from whom I learned some of the most difficult and important things I had to learn. Uh, particularly about the hazard of self-deception. Um, I was friends and learned from uh, the wonderful German Buddhist scholar, uh, Lama Anagarika Govinda, who some of you may know through his writing. I studied the wisdom literature, the Prajnaparamita literature with Dr. D Dr. Edward Kunze, who was at the UC Berkeley for a year. And uh, a whole troop of us would go to Berkeley for his lectures and seminars every day, five days a week. I also got to be friends with him and so um, got to see and experience what is inside uh, that pathway of being a teacher primarily as a scholar, not primarily as a meditator. I learned the wonderful practice of walking meditation that is walking without the usual strictness and um, hazard of um, tightness in Zen walking from Thich Nhat Hanh who teaches walking in a much more relaxed style which um, was a great blessing to me at the time. Um, that practice of walking meditation as he teaches it helped me undo a lot of my old habits around trying too hard. 
I studied with a, a remarkable uh, Lama in the Tibetan tradition named Taratulku. I was fortunate to study with him for six years until he died. And he really um, took me on as a, not only a practitioner, but as a teacher. And wanted to know in detail, all right, what are you teaching? How are you teaching it? Exactly what are you doing? That kind of close-in mentoring, guiding interest, um, in addition to his example as an extraordinary um, a, a level of cultivation that uh, we read about. But, of course, there's no substitute for the actual experience of someone who is quite realized. And in this case, um, a person who was just extraordinarily compassionate with no holidays to it. I've been fortunate to have studied um, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And in particular, the first teaching I took from him on the teaching by uh, the 9th century monk Shanti Deva, uh, which really uh, turned my own uh, spiritual practice around in a lot of ways. I studied with another Tibetan Lama named Chagdud Tulku, uh, a particular practice called Poa that's done uh, around the time of someone's dying. I studied some with a great uh, Zen teacher in Japan in a different uh, school than the one that's home for me, Uman Yamada Roshi, and his uh, disciple who is uh, now teaching part-time in the United States, Harada, Shoto Harada Roshi, both in the Rinzai tradition. And I studied with... Uh, a dear old friend, teacher, and like the grandfather for my children, um, Harry Kellett Roberts, who was a part uh, Native American and mostly Irish rascal, <laughs> who uh, studied with a uh, great Yurok uh, teacher, uh, Robert Spott. Harry took us crisscrossing the coast range from San Francisco to the Oregon border one weekend a month around the year for several years studying geology and soil and plants, flora and fauna. And I think it's everything about the Buddhist path to know where we are, the landscape. I also have had some, um, oh, my beloved uh, tea and no chanting teacher, Yaiko Nakamura. Maybe the toughest teacher I've ever experienced. The minute you would leave the tea room, she would do an imitation of you, <laughs> where she would get, get, get you in your essence. <laughs> Studying with her was not for the faint of heart, <laughs> but she was truly uh, remarkable. I also have had um, some people who have been primarily mentors, 
But I think mentoring is a very important um, aspect of uh, learning. Having somebody who is an inspiration and example and is at your back in that way of being a supportive. Nancy Wilson-Ross. Um, Maureen Stewart, a wonderful Zen teacher. The only Zen teacher I know who would, before she would go to the meditation hall, put on her makeup and wear her jewelry. Good Canadian, you don't go out unless you're dressed properly out of respect for the people that you're going to be with. And she was an inspired teacher. And she really uh, pushed me to begin teaching formally in a way that was uh, remarkably generous and um, timely. Um, I've also had a very strong um, mentor relationship with uh, an artist now in her mid-90s in New York, a woman named Lenore Tawney who was uh, one of the first people I knew who bridged both the fine arts and meditation. And to see how that those strands have come together in her work all of these years has been uh, very important for me. And Lord Pentland, who was in the Gurdjieff tradition, uh, but was again one of those people who uh, I have always felt during his lifetime, was at my back, saying, uh, yes. Um, someone I'm working with uh, off and on and more on now, uh, named Wendy Palmer, who some of you may know. She works from Buddhism and Aikido in the Aikido Dojo in Malali. And, um, I learn a lot from her. Uh, beginning when, uh, within say a year or so after Suzuki Roshi died, uh, because I suppose people knew that I had taken care of him, his wife and I took care of him um, as he was dying, people started asking me to keep them company while they were dying. And um, I've only listed um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people, but that's been a central piece of my spiritual practice for all these years since 1971. And every one of those people have been people who have taught me something, from whom I have learned something about the breath and a lot about the mind and a lot about the relationship between living and dying. Uh, my two teachers in the garden, Sarah Hammond and Wendy Johnson and the garden itself. I've uh, worked in a garden for, the same garden for 30 years. 
And the garden has taught me, among other things, about patience and how much, if we are patient, we will experience the generosity, the extraordinary generosity of the natural world. My mother, um, who died in her late 90s, and who was one of the most difficult people in my life, was also um, a source of uh, teaching for me in understanding what happens when we don't train the mind, when we um, stay stuck in our own conditioning, and in seeing her suffering. Um, I had a lot of uh, encouragement to stay on the path and real gratitude for meeting the Dharma. Not at all in the same category. I consider uh, my husband and my two children as people from whom I have learned an enormous amount that is directly related to the path. And in particular, to have a mate who is someone who is on the path as well is a particular gift. Because, of course, to have somebody that we live with who is uh, doing the same practices or related practices can be uh, the occasion for a kind of deepening of our inquiry into what our experience is and refining our ability to describe to ourselves and to a witness what is going on. And then there are, of course, the great ancestors. Shakyamuni Buddha himself, the great Shantideva, from whom I learned about how our so-called enemies are our teachers. Very deep teaching. The great Bengali uh, Atisha. And many um, colleagues, many Dharma colleagues, from whom I uh, both am inspired and learn. Suzuki Roshi, um, one time a number of years ago, made a statement which was for me at the time quite puzzling. He said, there is no such thing as a bad teacher. There are only bad students. <laughs> but I, I think he's right in this sense. Um, someone I might have rushed to categorize as a bad teacher uh, was somebody that I learned some of the most important things I could learn from. Um, and when I think back over the years of sitting in classrooms and lectures and in various kinds of learning situations, not just in the Buddhist tradition, um, 
as I'm sure is true for all of us, sometimes we find ourselves in a situation with someone who's effective and skillful and um, knows how to uh, bring forth the possibilities for learning and the, the mutual relational uh, qualities that make learning happen, I think. Um, but I've learned um, enormously from people who are not skillful and um, not very good at what they're doing. And of course, particularly for anyone sitting in the teaching seat, to understand what is effective and what is not effective, both are very important. In 1960, I was studying mathematics at San Francisco State, and I was taking a beginning calculus class. And the uh, professor teaching the class was the head of the department, head of the mathematics department. And it was from him that I learned that you don't teach a course, a beginning course, unless you are very uh, trained yourself. I've been very grateful for that, uh, the experience of seeing how important it was for me to be a, a beginning student in a subject and to be uh, being taught by and work with a teacher who knew the material cold, as we would say. And had, um, out of his enormous experience, great capacity to make the material accessible. So, you see what I mean by this kind of uh, catch-all list. It's not catch-all at all. Every one of the people on my list, whether they are care, uh, in the Buddhist tradition or not, has taught me something which is relevant in my practice and teaching in the Buddhist meditation path. From Suzuki Roshi, um, as I described in being with him as he was dying. During the years of his teaching and, and um, really developing the, the Zen Center, he was very strict with himself and enormously kind and patient with those of us who were his students. And that combination I found um, quite compelling. He also had a capacity uh, both in formal meditation and at other times for a remarkable degree of relaxation. And I think that for us as Americans, um, because we can get caught by trying hard, by trying to be good, by trying to do things perfectly, by trying to be a great meditator, we end up getting so 
constricted and tight that we are um, light years away from bringing effort but also practicing with ease. Not so easy to do. The late Tartulku, his parting words before he went back to India, uh, not very long before he died, he said, do as much as you can and take it easy. That's a very challenging combination. But uh, the longer I practice, the more I appreciate that without the quality of ease, we can uh, back ourselves into what is essentially old reactive patterning. And Suzuki Roshi showed me what ease looked like way before I recognized how important that quality is. Katagiri Roshi, who was um, much younger than, well, not much, but somewhat younger than Suzuki Roshi, and um, someone who, as a good Japanese Zen person, um, was very good at what I used to call the samurai school of Zen practice. You know, this big grimacing face, and he could be completely tough, especially on himself. And he had a capacity for enthusiasm and devotion and dedication to Buddhist practice that was just came out of him in every way. Nakamura Sensei, the uh, my tea and chanting teacher, uh, she was at the Zen Center for a number of years, and it looked like she was probably going to go back to Japan. So um, there was some notion that maybe she might see something more of America than Page Street in San Francisco in the Western Edition. So um, the decision was made that it would be nice if I would take her on a little trip around the United States. And of course at that point she spoke very little English and I spoke virtually no Japanese. And uh, the, so we went off together to New York and <laughs> New Mexico. <laughs> and um, we did quite well, much to my surprise. Every single day, no matter where we were or what the circumstances, she would wash her tabby, the little white Japanese socks that go with traditional sandals. She was a very uh, elegant, formal, 16th century Japanese tea teacher, <laughs> dressed always beautifully in kimono. And she would always wash her little white Japanese tabby socks she did some no chanting every day, no matter what. And she would do some aspect of tea ceremony, even if it wasn't the full thing. Some 
detail in the ceremony itself that she would be practicing. We spent about three weeks in New York making tea any place anybody would invite us to make tea. <laughs> and then we went to uh, Taos, New Mexico, and she wouldn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in particular one day uh, her doing tea ceremony in a great big white teepee which uh, the floor of it was covered with very fine white sand and there was a, a platform just the size of a tea ceremony space where she did tea ceremony. It was wonderful. But she liked all the beautiful rocks at the, uh, you know, at the rock shop on the side of the road and she liked the landscape and I kept having to call homes, making lame excuses for why we weren't coming back. And of course, what was so remarkable was that we did not have a shared spoken language, but we had so many other languages um, that we were able to call upon. And spending that time with her, uh, along with the years of studying with her, I, I learned an enormous amount about what it means to have a practice. To have something that you do, that you, are, that you learn, but which you are never an expert about. When her no chanting teacher died at some revered age, she was at that point in her 80s. Had she been a man, she would have been one of the highest ranking uh, no people in Japan. But as a woman, that was not open to her. She would, after her teacher died, she went back to Japan, found a new teacher who was in his 30s, and she began all over again. Presented herself as a brand new student who didn't know anything about no. And even though she was uh, remarkable at tea ceremony, I never had the sense of her being finished. She was also always a student of tea. So I learned from her a lot about what it means to have a practice or a cluster of practices that you do no matter what. No matter what the circumstances, no matter whether you feel like it or not. More refined than what my cow had taught me when I was seven, but in the same ballpark. Because of course to have a, a spiritual practice means it's something you do no matter what. No question doesn't matter whether you feel like it or not. And of course what happens when we bring ourselves to meditation practices when we feel like it and when we don't is that we get to see the mind in all of its ver variety. Feel like it, don't feel like it. And we begin to not be so despairing. 
when our meditation may be a little funky, a little busy or distracted or sleepy or whatever. We begin to realize that even on the days when we have uh, what we might call poor meditation, that there is something in the quality of the day that is affected by our having brought ourselves to whatever our practice is. I want to mention, um, lest you think that my animal teachers uh, were relegated to my childhood, I want to mention uh, that uh, I've also had some animal teachers in more recent years. One a quite remarkable a dog who was um, German Shepherd, co uh, Coyote, and I've pulled a blank on it. Collie. Beautiful. Very intelligent. She was not my dog. I was her person. <laughs> and she lived for something like 20 years. The last three years of her life, she was bedridden. We'd carry her around. We did a lot of laundry. And towards the end of her life, uh, we had some uh, monks from a Tibetan monastery staying with us. And they were all quite convinced that she was a very highly realized being would surely be reborn as a human being. She was quite uh, remarkable. And we had our walking meditation teacher, an old hound named Fred. He would uh, lie down in the middle of the meditation room. We would all be meditating. Then we'd get up to walk, and he'd get up, get in line, and walk with us. <laughs> And as he uh, aged, um, watching him lie down very carefully and get up very carefully was such a teaching about what mindfulness looks like. A number of years ago, um, I was part of a series of... Um, lectures on um, what are we searching for. And one of the uh, themes uh, was uh, this same one that Jack asked me to address. Um, who are my teachers? And in the process of um, thinking about how to answer that question then and again now, What I realized is that um, what is more uh, open uh, opening, uh, from my point of view, is the question, who and what teaches me? Under what circumstances do I learn? I think that um, to have a teacher where there's a effective learning uh, 
there is some mutuality there. I don't think that uh, it's that the teacher does all the teaching and the student does all the learning. Suzuki Roshi uh, said one time in a lecture, it is true that sometimes I'm the teacher and you are the student, but it is also true that sometimes you are the teacher and I am the student. And my experience over the years has been that it is only when all those possibilities are there that real learning can begin to happen. And yet, I would still stick to my earlier statement that I've learned very important things for me to learn from teachers who were not particularly effective teachers. Or in some cases, not even very nice human beings. <laughs> because of course, uh, part of the path is to understand human nature. And to understand uh, the difference between conditioning and the absence of conditioning. So I'd be very interested in uh, your inquiring in, out of your own experience what you think Suzuki Roshi meant when he said, there are no bad teachers, there are only bad students. <laughs> that really stuck in my craw for a long time. After a while, I thought, hmm, maybe he has a point. <laughs> so I think that's uh, enough for me. And I wonder if there are some things you'd like to bring up on this subject or some other subject. Oh, before I open it up, I want to make, uh, I want to make two suggestions. Um, some of you sit with your um, hands on your, resting on your thighs. And I want to suggest that you pay attention to the placement of your hands such that the elbows are directly under the shoulder. Because if the hands are far enough forward so that the elbow is in front of the shoulder, you'll begin to feel some strain in the lower back. But if the elbow is aligned with the shoulder, that won't be the case. So that's one little tip. The other is, uh, of course, what happens um, at the end of a long and busy day. You come and meditate and sit down and go to sleep. And I want to uh, warn you about cultivating the habit of sleeping uh, when you're meditating or when you plan to meditate. <laughs> because it is very easy to um, associate sleeping with meditation and that pattern is quite difficult to 
um, change. So if you find yourself uh, sleeping when you're sitting, either stand or walk. You won't go to sleep if you're standing or if you're walking. So that's my unasked for advice for the evening. <laughs> so if there are things that you'd like to bring up or questions you want to ask, please do. Yes. Right. I guess I need to, I would like to hear a little more about what the benefits of that level of regularity is. Um, the late Taratulku used to talk about intermittent meditation practice in the following way. Imagine that you have two fire sticks that you're going to rub together until you get a spark to ignite some uh, pile of tinder so you can cook your hot dog or whatever. <laughs> he said, so what happens? You get your two fire sticks and you rub them and then you stop. And then you rub them and you stop. And you rub them and you stop. What do you get? No spark, no fire. And I think that... Um, this particular issue of constancy in meditation practice is uh, challenging for most people. And yet, the fruits of meditation practice simply don't come forth until we have our meditation practice of a high enough priority so that we do it whether we feel like it or not. We do it no matter what. And um, one of the things I find interesting is that people often think, well, I should be meditating, you know, an hour or five in the morning. I've seen people develop a a steady practice, meditation practice, by starting with five minutes a day, but they do it no matter what. And then build on that, build on the success of sitting down for five minutes by uh, once that's set in a way that you have confidence that you're doing what you say you're going to do, you can then extend it to 10 minutes. So it's not, it's not so much a matter of starting out big. I actually think what's skillful is to start out small and establish the constancy factor before you begin to extend to longer periods of meditation. And I, I, I know lots of people who've been able to go from a very intermittent practice to a quite steady practice in just that way. Now, um, the constancy, I think, is important for a variety of reasons. One is that kind of establishing... Uh, let, let me back up a, a, a little bit. If you understand that in the Buddhist tradition, meditation is about the cultivation of attention, which has a high degree of energy, 
and which is stable. You're not going to develop that capacity for attention if you're only practicing being in attention intermittently. It's a kind of contradiction in terms. Um, but there's also another factor, which is that part of what we're doing in meditation is studying the mind. We have to study the mind so that we begin to know what the conditioned reactive patterning is for our particular mind stream. And if we, if we sit down and gather ourselves in this manner which is conducive to attention, we begin to see the mind when the mind is happy to be in the seat and not. And it's very important to see the cranky, I don't want to do this mind, along with, oh, isn't this wonderful? Why don't I do it more often? And everything in between and sideways and up and down. And I don't think we begin to get an accurate understanding, an accurate description, if you will, of the patterning in our conditioned mind unless we show up with our mind stream on a regular basis. Are you convinced yet? <laughs> I mean, in the end, the only way you'll be convinced is out of your own experience. You know, for a month, I'm going to practice sitting down in aligned posture, bringing attention to the breath. Every time the mind wanders, I notice wandering, come back to the breath, wandering, back to the breath. I'm going to do that for five minutes every day, preferably in the same time of day and if possible in the same place, if possible a place that's dedicated to that practice. Do that for a month and see what your experience is. You know, I can be enthusiastic, but it won't do you any good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it's also what I so appreciate about this tradition. The Buddhist teachings are entirely an invitation to try and find out for yourself. I, I, I'm very grateful for that invitation. Yes. 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 Yes, it's, it's interesting how we think of freedom as doing whatever we want to do whenever we feel like it. But I think true freedom comes with a capacity for, and the experience of discipline. Years ago, um, I was studying ceramics with Bob Arneson at the Art Institute. And uh, it was at a point when he was you know, slapping, he'd throw these phenomenal big pots and then he'd slap them with a big stick and take a big knife and gouge them. And, you know, all the young hotshot art students thought, oh, I can do that, only they didn't know how to throw the big pot. They'd just kind of get a pile of clay and whack it and slash it. <laughs> and it just didn't work. 
You know, what made the difference was that Arneson had this extraordinary capacity to throw a pot that was um, very even, the walls would be very even, the moisture would be exactly right so that he could throw a great big piece that wouldn't just collapse from its own weight. I really learned a lot between the cow and <laughs> watching him about um, exactly what you're talking about, the, the freedom that, that can come with those punctuations. And meditation practice can become that occasion. Thank you very much. That was a lovely description. Yes, way in the back. Speak up. <laughs> Everything. Absolutely. The whole show. Um, you know, as somebody who, well, at the time that I was taking care of Suzuki Roshi, I'd been um, a Zen practitioner for, I guess, about six years. And I think for any of us who are doing a breath-oriented meditation practice, we actually know something about the breath, and that is something we can bring as a resource for the person who's dying. But also, I have to say that I've learned an enormous amount about the breath from sitting with people as they're dying. The enormous variation from one breath to another. The enormous variation over the whole period of dying, especially in the late stages. But also to see how much the way someone dies, the characteristics of that experience, are so consistent with the way the person has lived. And, um, you know, it's all about patience. The person never dies as fast as the people taking care of them think they ought to. <laughs> Come on, why are you dragging this out? This is taking forever. And, of course, the person who's dying is dying at exactly the pace that fits for them. And probably I haven't taken a break. I need to take a nap or a walk or... You know, it's my mind stream again. So one of the things that I learned very early on was that whatever w was my edge on any given day would surely show up in the process of sitting with someone while they're dying. I've been very uh, fortunate to have sat with people in circumstances that are, I think, pretty unusual these days, in that um, many of the people, m most of the people I've sat with, I've sat with continuously oh, 24 hours a day over a period of anywhere from uh, a few days to several months. So having that kind of unbroken, constant being with somebody and then sitting with their body for three days after they die. Um, 
has given me a sense of this continuum and the arbitrariness in our saying, well, when the person's heart stops beating and they don't take another inhalation, that means they've died. But there's much more this sense of a continuum that gets more and more subtle. And that this is when they've died seems, from that perspective, rather arbitrary. The subtlety of presence and consciousness as a person begins to withdraw from ordinary interaction. Um, I've learned a lot about the breath. I've learned a lot about If we had a month or two, maybe I could tell you a little bit. Everything about how to live one's life. And uh, I've had some experiences where someone who seemed like the least likely candidate for dying with the kind of presence that I experienced with Suzuki Roshi, and yet somehow it happens. That happened with one woman who had tried to have a meditation practice much of her adult life. She'd tried doing tea ceremonies. She tried all kinds of things. She was married to the, um, I don't know what's the right word, like the, the director of a very, f in, at that time, famous rock and roll band. <laughs> Drugs, sex, and rock and roll do not make for an easy dime at least not in this person's case. And yet in the last 10 years, uh, ten days of her life, she, um, she just said goodbye to everybody and everything. She kind of cleared the decks. She had two of us keeping her company and she died very, with great presence and remarkable ease in a way that I would never have imagined she could have done. I think um, sitting with people while they're dying is a very good fit for people who are meditators because we as meditators have some experience with the breath and we also can be taught. So there's a kind of mutuality there that I think is uh, can be quite quite uh, remarkable. Yeah. Go into one tradition for 15, 20 years, and then spread out. Not the other way around. I mean, when I met Taratulku, I would have studied, if he was teaching how to make shoes, I would have studied how to make shoes with him. I, I sat in the corner of his room in in Bodh Gaya while, while during teachings that I was 
taking from His Holiness. And just His presence was quite striking to me. Um, I didn't go to India that particular trip with an idea of jumping ship from the Zen path at all. And interestingly, um, I'm more devoted to my home path for having studied with uh, the late Tara Tulku and His Holiness. Um, there's a lot of Vajrayana in Zen. So partially what I've learned from studying in the Theravadan stream and in Vajrayana is how much there are elements from those two streams in Zen. Um, and of course it's very interesting here in the United States more and more teachers in one path or one school are now taking teachings from uh, teachers in other traditions so that what we're getting is um, more of ease with what is essential in all of the schools. But um, I think we have to be very careful of our American tendency for the smorgasbord um, approach, which allow we, we don't then let ourselves go really deep. And um, I just can't say enough about going deep. I mean, you know, in my list of teachers, you can tell I've studied with teachers outside of the Zen tradition, but not until after I'd stayed in the Zen school for a long time. And Tartulku himself uh, was not, he said, I don't want you to um, become a Vajrayana practitioner. I want you to stay in your own path and use what you can do with me to develop what is already there. And I think it was very, very sound advice. All right, now we're all going to turn into pumpkins. Thank you very much. I wish you well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.